Okay. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's my uh, third time at this conference uh, and my first time speaking. Uh, I'm really honored to be uh, sharing my thoughts uh, with this wonderful group of people. Um, it was a great pleasure to read the bulletino. I'm going to stay there as well. Um, it resonated with a lot of issues that I've been recently thinking about uh, in my professional life and also just uh, kind of personally. So um, what I want to talk about is uh, alignment of the self-interest with the common interest. And so when I think about the, you know, the main precept of economics is that people act out of their self-interest, you, know, you want to think about maybe defining the self-interest a little bit more broadly than the personal gain. Right? So for most people in the room, the reason we are here is personal interests also include uh, social good and common good in them, but the, the problem is it's not the case for all people, and that's why uh, we are discussing this problem. So the problem arises when self-interest that drives people's actions is in a conflict with a common good or a common interest. And I do believe that there is a future at some point where for most people there would be no conflict between self-interest and the common good. I don't think we can just sit and wait for this to come. And because I don't know much about how to affect individual values, I think our, um, our, the clergy present in the room knows a lot more about this. What I'm going to talk about is how those interests could be aligned from the institutional point of views in the meantime. So there are two reasons why I think it's important to think about that. One is if we can align those values in the institutional setting, then we can incentivize individuals who act out of self-interest to actually do some common good, even if they're not uh, individually interested in that. But the second thing, and I think it's more important, is that once people start acting for whatever reason, uh, for the purpose of the common good, they can see that that actually brings them satisfaction and happiness. And even when the incentive is removed, they can continue acting in an ethical way, the way we want, want them to act. So kind of this is what I want to focus on, and I'm going to talk about three areas in which, kind of to give you an example of what I'm thinking about, where the alignment of incentive is already taking place in banking and finance. And these three areas are community development activities by banks, impact investing, and climate change related developments. So because I'm at the Fed, I've recently kind of started interacting with uh, people outside of the research department, which is not so common to do at the Fed. Uh, but, you know, I've learned a lot. And so um, one thing I learned is that since the 70s, we have a Community Reinvestment Act in the US. That act was adopted by the Congress to address the problem of racial discrimination in mortgage lending. And so the banks are um, now rated on how much loans and investments they do in the disadvantaged communities. And if their ratings are not high enough, they might be prevented from uh, mergers, pretty much the merging activity, okay? So 
even though it started with uh, trying to avoid racial discrimination, the mortgage lending had kind of moved way beyond that. And in about the last 10 years, what the banks are doing is engaging actively with disadvantaged communities, with community organizations and business organizations, and they're developing relationships in those communities to, to actually not just lend, but invest. And they do it above and beyond what would be required by the Community and Reinvestment Act. Now, why would they do it? Well, because as soon as they started lending, uh, because they were required to, to the low-income and low-middle-income communities, what they realized after gathering some data, it's actually really good business, right? They had this misconception that low-income population is high-risk. What they learned is that low income, loans to low-income population are actually low-risk. These are the loans that perform the best through recession. So in fact, it's a great diversification instrument. So even if you don't have to invest in the low-income community, it's just good business. And once you start doing it, you develop relationships with business leaders. And even if you don't have to, you continue to work on this. This is a little bit similar to the Brahmin Bank that started microcredit in developing countries and showed how profitable this could be. And the result of that, a lot of for-profit investment money went to developing communities. Um, so before I move on to the other two examples, I want to highlight um, a couple of threats that are rising in terms of this banking engagement with communities uh, that come from fintech. We touched upon fintech a little bit in the previous session. So first is uh, big data, right? So uh, banks are not allowed to uh, enter variables that could be potential source of discrimination into their models of uh, what is the interest rate they're going to charge on the loan? They can't rate, enter race, they can't enter gender. Okay, and so that's one way in which uh, the banks are not allowed to even statistically discriminate between the loan applicants. However, once we feed a lot of data, all possible data in the model, the model implicitly figures out, and even if it doesn't ever, ever show up, the gender and the race of the loan applicant in the data, what we see now, there's some research showing that those discrimination patterns are now arising again because people who wrote this code to analyze the big data and the data that the models were trained on do have those biases. Okay, so, so that's one, uh, one of the issues. And so there's no question that big data and data analysis increases efficiency uh, and potentially reduces risk, but that's one of the side effects that uh, we need to be aware of. The other thing is the rise of online and mobile banking. One of the goals of Community Reinvestment Act was to increase access to financial services for disadvantaged communities. And for sure, online and mobile banking is also doing that. You don't need to have a branch to do some basic uh, banking services. On the other hand, this kind of ba remote banking also reduces the profitability for banks to actually have branches, physical branches in remote areas. And the research shows that for small businesses, physical proximity to a bank branch is incre in incredibly important. And 
if those physical branches are closed, then all these relationships that bank are developing, banks are developing with communities that go beyond basic banking services also might disappear. Um, and finally, the third thing, the rise of the fintech is also increasing the market share of the institutions that are not regulated in any way. Uh, again, they are uh, increasing competition, they're increasing access to services at the same time. Um, they're not subject to regulations such as Community Reinvestment Act or fair practices or safety and soundness. And so there is a potential for abuse or uh, you know, the, more generally, those institutions are not necessarily aware of needs and opportunities of underserved communities. Okay. So this is on, uh, on banking. My next example is social investing and uh, generally impact investing. So social investing, as you probably know, was actually initially pioneered by Catholic nuns. Catholic nuns took a bunch of their savings and they put them into the community projects and they actually earned good returns on those projects. And by that, they demonstrated that actually investing in the community, again, could be good business. It doesn't have to be charitable. Um, so I, I'll give you just one example that I learned about recently that kind of says how the, this project individual profit motive for a company could align with the needs of the community. Kaiser Permanente is not just a hospital, it's also the insurance company. And so, because they're also the insurance company, reducing the incidence of health events is actually profitable for them. So what they realized is that one of the uh, large cost uh, factors for them is the health incidents that are related to homelessness. So they're now investing in the affordable housing because it makes business sense for them. If they can have more affordable housing, fewer people are homeless, fewer people show up uh, at their door that need services. Uh, again, so, so, so this is another example. More generally, what we see now, uh, I think, is on the rise, and it gives me uh, reason for optimism is that uh, impact investing, which I would say it, it's investing that takes into account longer term goals rather than immediate profit motives. It's becoming a thing in the Silicon Valley. Um, and a lot of people who made their money uh, you know, in the tech business, they're now looking for the opportunities to invest this money, but not to make more money out of the money because they have enough. They are looking for the opportunities to invest this money to better the world in some way and also make returns. But their first goal is to better the world because they want their children to live in a better world. And so that is something with, that we see happening and I think it's great and gives me uh, you know, a lot of hope. Um, and finally, I want to talk about the uh, climate change-related developments. So two years ago, I was here for the first time for the discussion of Laudato Si. Uh, I can pronounce that. <laughs> um, so how does it relate uh, to our topic? I think there are two ways. First, the climate-related weather events are already affecting disadvantaged communities disproportionately. Uh, they are, those disadvantaged communities are less prepared to bear the costs of the extreme 
events such as fire in California that we've experienced in the last two years, uh, and they live in the areas that are generally more vulnerable. Uh, and just give you a number, the annual average annual number of disaster declarations by counties in last 20 years tripled from about 300 per year to about 900 per year. Okay, so we have a lot of uh, disaster events that the communities might not be prepared to handle. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, kind of thinking in terms of both the Laudato Si and, uh, and the bulletin, ethical economic behavior must include the well-being of future generations into the uh, con in, in consideration, and therefore it must include consideration of sustainability of economic activities, and that's in addition to treating God's creation with care. Um, so here I've been involved a little bit in kind of trying to learn about what's going on with respect to climate change, and we see a little bit of an alignment of self-interest and the common good here as well. It's kind of a bittersweet thing because it's good that there is an alignment. The fact that we've come to the situation where self-interests of financial companies include concern about climate change means we've waited a bit too long. Um, but basically, uh, as an example, um, a number of states in the United States had their insurance commissioners uh, agree on the need to act in some way because insurance companies are the first that uh, bear financial risk of, of extreme weather events. And so for example, in California, insurance companies were requested to divest from coal companies and promise to never invest in coal companies again, not because we think coal is bad, but because we think investment in coal is too risky for insurance companies to be investing in because as climate change progresses, there is a high risk of some regulation that would outlaw coal, and so those, those investments will go bad. But that aligns the need for the re reduction in greenhouse gases with the incentives uh, for the insurance companies to uh, keep their investments safe. There is a group of large financial institutions worldwide, about 150 of them, that recognize that climate change-related risks are posing risks to their balance sheets, and so they're working on the ways to properly measure and mitigate those risks. And as they do so, the investment in so-called brown industries would go down and investment in green industries will go up. So again, the needs for uh, reallocation of capital to more sustainable industries is going to happen because of the self-interest of those institutions. But that's not happening fast enough, so there's a group of uh, major central banks that formed also a coalition of the willing. Uh, the Fed's not part of it, or not part of it yet, uh, but was led by Bank of England, and Bundesbank is part of it, Bank of Japan, and you know, 36 central banks at the moment. Um, formed a network for greening the financial system to conduct the research to see how can the central banks uh, incentivize the movement towards sustainable uh, economic activities to progress faster than it does on its own. Um, so I'm going to conclude. I agree um, that self-interest poses a major problem in our society, but I'm encouraged to see that the problem is recognized as we've discussed, and maybe not recognized widely enough, but you know, we'll all go home and spread the word that it is a problem. Um, 
And I think there are some steps to move, we're moving in the right direction in some ways. And um, they're not, maybe not even uh, generally noticeable, those steps, but they can help speed up the process. Um, and so while the church is working to improvement of the human soul and realignment internally of the goals of, of self-interest and the common interest. I think what the regulators can do in the meantime is work on the re realigning institutional interests that then can maybe catalyze those movement within individuals. Because she didn't have slides, Galena forgot to mention that these are not necessarily reflect the official views of the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciated the, the comments of uh, Cardinal Turkson as um, saying this was not what I studied in seminary, uh, nor was this what I studied in, in seminary uh, myself. I have a, a degree in theology and sacramental theology, and uh, so um, I had trouble balancing my checkbook whenever we still used checkbooks. Um, but these conversations are very helpful, so, so my comments are going to be from the perspective of a pastor. So um, I have, um, was, was a priest in Houston for 14 years, and uh, in various assignments, I've been sort of moving westward uh, to, from San Antonio, where I served as auxiliary bishop, and, and southern New Mexico, uh, where I was most recently uh, bishop. And now I've been in, in uh, Silicon Valley at, uh, in San Jose um, as, as the new bishop there, the, the coadjutor bishop. I also had the, the, the privilege of, of chairing our Bishop's Committee on International Justice and Peace, which took me to various parts of the world, some of the more troubled uh, parts of the world to, uh, to listen, to observe, and to be able to come back to, to Washington to advocate for policy that brings justice and peace to those, those situations around the world. So what I want to do is just um, I had several possible uh, anecdotes or uh, to share with you. I'll, I'll choose a few of those. And um, uh, so some of my observations, and hopefully you may bring some uh, financial and, and regulatory eyes to it and, and perhaps even have some suggestions for me and, uh, and dialoguing uh, into the future with the, the Mark Zuckerbergs and uh, others in Silicon Valley. So I want to start with an, an observation. Um, uh, my role in the International Committee took me to the Congo, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, a few times, and supporting the local church there, um, encouraging them in their efforts. Uh, unfortunately, the only moral voice in, in that country that was tremendously troubled um, by uh, uh, a regime, uh, the government that did not want to step down and trying to, to navigate a peaceful transfer of power. Um, and, uh, and, and beyond that, um, the, uh, an oligarchy that, is, that was corrupt uh, and that was benefiting itself uh, 
from the riches and tremendous riches of that country. Um, one of which were, was the, the mineral industry. And so it was uh, tr uh, tremendously rich. Unfortunately, it was not the country, it was not the poor, it was not the people that were, were benefiting from the sale of, of mineral rights uh, and the excavation of, of those minerals, but were the, the oligarchy that were enriching themselves. Um, maybe you may have some insight to that. We encountered that as well in Central and South America where sadly it was American companies and Canadian companies that were going down to Central and South America uh, to benefit from the, the minerals, um, uh, paying minimal costs uh, for the excavation and, and the, uh, the rights to, the, to those minerals. Um, but it was, um, I think, a, uh, a very helpful and uh, I think happy uh, uh, dialogue that took place between the, the, the local church, the indigenous people that, that were suffering because their, their farming land was destroyed uh, and they were removed. They had no voice uh, in, in, in losing their farming land, uh, their, their, their own industry to, to support their families. So there was a, a happy, through years of dialogue, uh, that there was an agreement where the, the companies would, um, would come in and they would actually lift up, as it was described to me, lift up the topsoil and uh, excavate underneath to, to, to bring out the, the, um, the, the minerals um, that they were able to, to, to sell and to, to use. And the topsoil was, was placed back down so that the farmers could continue to farm the land. Um, so again, here's a, a, a particular reference to a win-win situation um, and where some of the, the benefits of the mineral industry helped in the, the local community. So there are models out there for, for these win-wins. Um, most recently, I was uh, Bishop of, uh, of Las Cruces in southern New Mexico, one of the most impoverished uh, dioceses of the United States. Uh, so it was quite a shock going from uh, very few paved roads to, to highly manicured uh, 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 lots and, and roads of, of Silicon Valley, uh, a cultural shock within our own country. But one of the, the things uh, I was particularly shocked when I first arrived to, to Las Cruces by the poverty. Um, and I'm from the Southwest, but I grew up in, in, in big cities and in, in Houston and uh, was in San Antonio for a while. And seeing these small rural communities that, and the various tentacles of, of poverty lack of, of educational opportunity, bad health care, no insurance, uh, 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 a bad housing, uh, unsafe housing, uh, and so on. So all of those, those aspects. One of the things that the, the state had going for it and in, in that it was mineral rich, uh, particularly with oil and natural gas uh, on the east side of the state um, and so 
these rural communities were to some degree able to benefit with, with higher paying jobs, uh, didn't always benefit from the, they weren't the, the owners necessarily of, of these companies. Um, but there is a, a rather large, and as I understand, the largest fund, educational fund, that comes from the, the oil industry, the, uh, the taxes paid on, on the oil industry and natural gas, that goes is, uh, by constitution of the state, uh, goes to educational uh, uh, a fund. Um, and, uh, but it was limited to uh, first grade to, to 12. And going on the, the data, uh, much of which was, has been talked about in this institute some years ago, the importance of investing in early child, childhood development. So the bishops of New Mexico have been advocating uh, for, for over a decade on expanding a, a, a constitutional amendment to, that, to the use of that fund, that it be used as well for early childhood development. That, that would help tremendously uh, children to, um, to, to engage and not to start out in kindergarten or, fir or first grade already two or three years behind, and they never catch up. So um, uh, unfortunately, th that, uh, that proposal has been blocked year after year by one person, by one senator who's the chair of the, uh, I forget the committee, the, the appropriations uh, uh, committee. And he won't let it go to a vote. We've convinced all of the players that this makes sense. Everybody agrees, but it's blocked. And so, um, so, so again, uh, an undue wielding of power that has been uh, referenced here this, this morning. Um, in S Silicon Valley, uh, you've, you've, you're aware of this, the, um, um, the, the tech industry has brought an influx of tremendous wealth uh, to, to Silicon Valley. Uh, that's my diocese. Um, and so you would think all is well, lots of wealth. Well, when I first got there, I was overwhelmed by the number of homeless people on every corner of San Jose. Um, how can it be in such a wealthy part of the world, it's wealthy part of, of the country, we can have so many homeless people? And not only street people, but working poor. University students who are homeless, living in their cars. Uh, one of our, the ministries of, of many of our parishes has been to open their parking lots to uh, uh, people who are living in their cars so that they can have a safe place to sleep at night. Um, that should not be. We will do that as a, as a necessity, but we need to look at structures that um, that have brought people to, to that point. Um, if people are, are have a, a full-time job, they need to be able to live in a place that is worthy of their dignity. Um, so the, the very industry that has brought uh, tremendous wealth to the area uh, has 
unintended consequences of skyrocketing housing that is not affordable to, uh, to teachers, to police officers, to uh, firefighters. We can't do without teachers. We can't do without these professionals in the middle class. Where are they to live? So many of them are living, have to move two hours away and commute for two hours each way. That is not reasonable. We need to find a better way. Now, pressure has been placed by, uh, by the public. It's been placed by the, our new governor um, that squarely on the tech industry that this was an unintended consequences. You've uh, created great wealth. You need to be part of the solution. And so we've seen the beginning of, of some of those proposals. Um, and I'd be interested in, in hearing some of your, your thoughts in, in, in that regard. Uh, just a, an interesting take, uh, one, of, one of my priests uh, um, teaches in one of our Catholic high schools and teaches Catholic social teaching. And he's got a class that he calls it entrepreneurship. Um, many of their, the, the students' parents are entrepreneurs. They work in the tech industry themselves. Uh, and so they're familiar with, with the term and perhaps that's something they would like to do. But the twist is how can you bring an entrepreneurial spirit to Catholic social teaching? Uh, this priest introduced me to one of his students uh, just a few days ago uh, whose proposal uh, and in, he, in fact, he has his own Shark Tank uh, uh, event at the, at the high school where they present, the students present their, their entrepreneurial ideas. Um, and uh, this particular student, his, his idea was to, he did a study of, uh, speaking of the housing crisis in Silicon Valley, that so many homes uh, have uh, rooms that are vacant. And so how do we leverage that room, which becomes a very high commodity, um, to the, the tremendous need of people, whether it's teachers, whether it's uh, students, to be able to, to, to rent out at a, at a, at a right price uh, those rooms that are vacant? Um, and so how do, how do we leverage those, those realities? Um, and I want to end with this. Uh, this is not a... a a personal experience, but one that has been shared. I happen to sit on the, the board of Catholic Charities USA. And one of the, the examples that we want to make scalable um, is the example of Catholic Charities in Spokane, Washington. Uh, and you might talk to, to Rob McCann. He is the, the CEO of, of Catholic Charities there in Spokane. Uh, a tremendous uh, project that he undertook that has had great success. Um, the problem that, that he saw, he and others uh, saw, was that uh, a large homeless population that was taxing the, the hospital district uh, because of their constantly going to and making use of the uh, emergency room. As, as we know, emergency room services are tremendously uh, much more expensive than, than preventive services. So he brought that to, to the board of the hospital district, brought it to the county, brought it to the city, 
And they realized that it would be uh, better on their bottom line of their budget if they invested in housing for the homeless that Catholic charities would administer. Uh, and so they would remain healthy, uh, these otherwise homeless. They would not uh, make use so often of emergency services. And so at the end of the day, it helped the budget of uh, the hospital district. Um, uh, the local politicians were able to make safe face and say, look at these wonderful things that we're doing. Um, and Catholic Charities does what it does best, is to take care of the poor. So again, a win-win situation. My question, I'll leave us with this. How do we make it in people's best interest to do what is right? Good morning, everybody. I am very honored to have this uh, opportunity to speak at a conference that I've mostly witnessed for the last dozen years or so. Um, but I'm a little worried because uh, you're leaving the um, asset-stripping, blood-sucking, private equity locust for last, you see. So, uh, well, I, I'd like to, what I'd like to do is, is give you a little bit of a thought experiment, sort of a real-life, um, real-world example of a, of a business dilemma that investors, active investors, like, uh, like private equity investors, uh, face from time to time. Okay, so here's the, here's the scenario. You're the CEO of a mid-sized technology services company based in the Midwest. You work for private equity owners, and they can be a pretty tough and exacting bunch. You're behind budget. You have some debt on the balance sheet that has certain stipulations about profitability. Your own incentive plan and the plan of many of your top and middle management is tied to profitability. And you know that the value of the business and the value of your incentives will depend on that profitability, the prospects for that profitability when your owners decide to take the company public or perhaps sell the business someday. Now, as you're wont to do, you've been experimenting with ways to be more efficient and one experiment that is working well for you is offshoring customer service to Croatia. Your experiment has proven that you can deliver the same or better customer service metrics in Croatia at half the cost, and doing so for a lot more of the work will bring you back on budget. What do you do? Now, on the one hand, offshoring means cutting jobs in the local community. On the other hand, profitability questions aside, you've been impressed by the Croatian community you've had to deal with on this experiment. The business leaders there, the workers there, they're very motivated, they're very happy to have the work. Your own employees sometimes seem a little less motivated, increasingly difficult to keep. But by offshoring, you may be sending a message to your workers that you're not loyal to them or to the community. And many of those terminated employees, while they may take some time to find new work, there's uncertainty there, assuming they can even find it. So what's the right answer? What do you do? Well, before I unpack that question, allow me to describe what my profession is all about. Think of private equity, private equity investing, as capitalism on steroids. The economists in the room uh, understand uh, what, what's going on here. We've got agency incentives. 
working for us. We're loaded with agency. We buy control of private companies or take large equity stakes in them, sometimes taking them public, uh, sorry, taking public companies private, and we invest our own money and the monies of our limited partners when we do so. And our limited partners are often pension funds and university endowments. And they're very keen in making sure we invest their money for high returns. And they're willing to take on the illiquidity and business uh, operating risks of private equity investing, as well as the risks of leveraged balance sheets that are often a part of driving equity returns by investing with us. We are rewarded handsomely if we succeed. We fade away if we can't keep up with the pack, our many, many private equity fund competitors. Having lots of our own money invested in our portfolio companies, sitting on their boards of directors and often controlling their boards, we operate very differently than the average public company board, where members are often very, have very little invested and very little agency, that is, and who often depend on being in the good graces of their CEOs for their continuation of cushy sinecures. Agency seems to make a difference. Booth's uh, Steve Kaplan has shown that investing in the average private equity fund, even accounting for the effects of leverage, has been a meaningfully better proposition than investing in the market for just about any time period since the late 1980s when the, the data was first assembled. But, uh, but most everyone, and most everyone I, I know in private equity, would wholeheartedly embrace Milton Friedman's axiom. And that is, quote, there is one and only one social responsibility for business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so, so long as it stays within the rules of the game, which is to say, engages in open and free competition without deception or fraud. Leave social responsibility, he's saying, to executives or employees to support in their spare time. Profitability is everything. Why? Well, because it's measurable and it's comparable and profitability and the potential for sustaining and growing profitability is the measure of value when a business is sold or brought public. The economists in the room will agree that when other related markets are generally free, markets for labor, for inputs, for distribution, running a business singularly focused on maximizing profitability is the best course for society as a whole. Everyone benefits, not just the business owners. Now, there are not a few significant caveats at work here. First, that the market is relatively free all around. Second, that there do exist certain well-articulated and well-understood rules of the game. And third, deception or fraud either doesn't pay or most actors believe that, beha that, that, that behavior to be unethical. Okay, so back to my opening scenario. What would you do? What you might do would depend on how the rules of the games have been set and how you've set the rules depends on what your objectives for the game ultimately are. Now, my many libertarian friends in the private equity industry would not think twice. The only rules of the game that matter are those that assure free and open competition without deception or fraud, as Uncle Milty argues. Of course, you can of course you offshore those, those, uh, those employees uh, and, and offshore that customer service work. It's more profitable to do so. And not only doing that, you, uh, not only that, profitability. You, you also promote human welfare when viewed through a worldwide lens. 
The degree to which those jobs are transforming the lives of the poor in the developing world far outweighs the inconvenience and modest wage loss of those terminated employees in the Midwest. And those terminated employees, well, they have opportunities for retraining and repurposing uh, for wage enhancement that those in the developing world do not. Now, of course, the capitalist owner wins, and it's only envy at work if you worry about this. The libertarians, of course, as their arguments may sound, do have strong evidence in their favor. Since the advent of capitalism, and increasingly so over the last 20 years of rapid globalization, human welfare has enjoyed a radically steep and steady march upwards. Now, if you set the rules more in line with Catholic social teaching, however, you might come out a very different door. We are human beings who live in relation, not human beings who are self-satisfying material, material utility maximizers. And if you think that life is merely about maximizing personal happiness, then you're not going to end up very happy, either by the end of this life or quite likely when you wake up in the afterlife. Through the CST lens, one would argue that the company has an obligation to employees and families whose livelihoods depend on those jobs that is no less equal to its obligations to pr produce profits for its shareholders. Whether the owners realize it or not, they exist in the community in relation to its members and blessed by their wealth and capital that they, that they possess, they have a special responsibility to the members of that extended family. Yes, those jobs may mean more in, to the Croatian community across the ocean, but that's a secondary consideration. What matters most is the immediate welfare of those the company has connected with locally. Now what's interesting is that in the current political climate, we're witnessing a convergence of sorts among the left, the right, and Catholic social teaching on this question. Elizabeth Warren proposes that 40% of the board of a corporation with more than a billion dollars of sales be elected by employees. She also proposes that corporations have a legal duty to take into account the impact their decisions have not only on shareholders, but also on workers, local communities, and the environment. Her line of thinking shares a point of view that runs through papal encyclicals from Rerum Novarum to Caritas and Veritate. Quote, business management cannot concern itself only with the interests of the proprietors, Pope Benedict writes in Caritas and Veritate, but must also assume responsibility for all other stakeholders who contribute to the life of the business, unquote. This co-determination model that Warren proposes is it what's at work in Germany? It seems to be working well there. Should we deploy it in America too? Now, Oren Cass, who was at a very different point on the political spectrum than Warren, makes a similar argument. In his recent book, The Once and Future Worker, Cass asks a very fair question about the economy and how we choose to regulate it. What are we trying to optimize? Consumption or production? Do we want a society that produces the most goods from the highest quality to the merely sufficient at the very best prices? Or do we want high quality jobs that keep families and communities together? The Friedman principle seems most applicable to consumption optimization. Free, highly competitive markets will create the best possible outcomes for consumers and investors. Yes, over the long run, workers repurposed ought to benefit too. But in the last 15 years of free trade, elevated immigration, 
and advances in automation, we've watched many American workers, at great cost to their families and communities, lose their jobs, have a hard time being retrained, and resist moving away from family and communities to seek better job opportunities, and understandably so. Shouldn't we do more as a society, as an American community, to protect workers, even at the expense of some efficiency, choice, and return on capital? So let me tell you what, what my CEO decided to do. He recommended we move a big chunk of that work overseas. Did we do the right thing? Well, the CEO wrote me later, quote, my job is to create a healthy, prosperous, and profitable company, not just for the shareholders, but for the preservation of the company and the continued opportunity that a healthy employer creates for the growth and sustenance of its team members and their dependents. I try vigilantly to protect that, and one way of doing so is through cost-saving tactics, in this case, outsourcing. Now listen to his argument. He sounds more like Elizabeth Warren or Pope Benedict might on the question. It's not just about profits, though his profitability plans are a big motivator. He's got the long-term view of the corporation and its many stakeholders in mind. He's less focused on the near-term effects, he'll argue. In fact, he'll argue that these people, those people he terminates, well, they're going to quickly find jobs because the job market in uh, the up west, upper parts of Michigan are wickedly efficient, he'll say. He believes he's doing the right thing by everyone connected to the corporation. In case you're wondering, and maybe not surprisingly, this CEO happens to be a very devout Catholic. But do appreciate the tensions here. The core question at the heart of all regulation is, whether it's antitrust regulation, trade policy, even environmental regulation, what is the community we seek to protect and at what cost? Is it the world community or the local community? The consumer or the producer? We can tax or restrict offshoring and wage growth and human welfare in the developing world will suffer. We can open our doors to economic refugees from around the world, but wages for the poorest in our communities will be suppressed. We can lift the minimum wage ever higher but entry-level jobs, especially for the youth, will contract and companies will quicken their work to develop labor-saving technologies. There are very real trade-offs for pollution control too, and they've been unappreciated, underappreciated. We can have the cleanest air in the world, which thanks to environmental regulation among industrialized nations, we arguably do. But as Cass points out in his book, we have that air at the cost of jobs in mining and manufacturing. Getting the true costs right and having an open discussion about those trade-offs is key to rational regulatory policy. I can assure you that profit-maximizing private equity investors will adjust their behavior accordingly. So allow me to uh, conclude my talk by thanking Cardinal Turkson and the Catholic intellectual tradition more broadly, an active, probing, challenging, questioning voice of the church in the public squares of the Western world is absolutely essential to the well-functioning, the moral potential of our markets and societies generally. I, we, all actors in market economies need to be reminded constantly why we are here, what we were made for, what greater cause exists beyond the daily grind, the daily pursuit of personal wealth and happiness. And I applaud Cardinal Turkson and his colleagues at the Vatican for the Balatino.
In the wake of the great financial crisis and the ongoing rapid globalization of finance, questions about market structure, regulatory oversight, and ethical misbehavior of market participants must be asked. And we all benefit greatly when those questions are asked by observers on the periphery of the system, like the church, and by thinkers who answer to the ultimate market maker. Thank you very much.